creation of a new information operations technical training school. So in our business of national security, where our job is to fly, fight, and win, we better be masters at this game of innovation. Air Force Basic Military Training has an updated curriculum with a new focus on readiness and lethality. This is the Developing Mach 21 Airmen Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome in to Developing Mach 21 Airmen, episode number five today, and we're talking about all things Pilot Training Next 2.0, so it should be a great podcast. I think you're going to love it. Thanks for the subscribe, stream, or download, however you might be listening in today. If you get a chance to throw us some stars or you even have a little extra time and want to give us a review, we certainly would appreciate you doing that as well. We love all the feedback that we've been getting so far here on Developing Mach 21 Airmen. My name is Dan Hawkins from the Air Education and Training Command Public Affairs Office and your host for this professional development podcast dedicated to bringing total force Big A Airmen insight, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from the recruiting, training, and education field. Tons of great stuff today that we're going to talk about with the director of pilot training next, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Vickers. He goes by the call sign SLU, and he's been with the program since day one, literally getting the charge from Lieutenant General Quas to build this program. And he's seen it from the days when they were taking the VR simulators out of the box and having to put them together right as class was starting in version one. This second iteration has a few differences from the first cohort, which graduated late last summer with 13 new pilots earning their wings. One of the major differences is the fact that they aren't trying to build as many processes concurrently at the same time that they have the students on the ground, which they had to do in version one. So the flow of the class that started in mid-January is, is going a little bit smoother. Lieutenant Colonel Vickers also spends time on the focus areas for this edition of Pilot Training Next, including innovation, which also includes the art of failing forward. And this shows that the Air Force is willing to assume reasonable risk in that innovation process. So he's going to talk a little bit about that and also their partnership with AFWorks. He also talks about the scalability of this program in terms of how they create a model that can be replicated on a much larger scale across undergraduate pilot training, including what elements of the training can contribute to the larger learning next initiatives in AETC. And he also talks about the use of big data to help the training process. One of the more revealing aspects of our conversation with Colonel Vickers was how much the PTM learned in iteration one about what not to do with data. So this second iteration, they're hoping to get more use of the data that they're able to collect and what the analysis of that data reveals. Of course, the use of immersive technology is something that we spent a great deal of time discussing, including how the VR simulator events will be monitored by artificial intelligence for grading and data tagging. Additionally, the focus on student-centered learning continues and the push to give more control of learning over to the students, both of which are in line with the AETC strategic plan. A few of the other things that we get the chance to touch on during the podcast was the talent selection process, which included cadets at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs going through a distance learning process. 
and why enlisted airmen are part of the course at Pilot Training Next. We also discuss the joint feel with two U.S. Navy students in attendance with this version two, as well as the international flavor of having a Royal Air Force officer from the United Kingdom in the mix as well. So away we go. Episode five of Developing Mach 21 Airmen starts right now. So Colonel Vickers, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been in the Air Force. Uh, I enlisted in 1994 as an Intel Airman. Uh, got the opportunity to commission. Uh, did that through the SOAR program in 1999, flew F-16s for a few years. Um, my last F-16 sortie was in 2006, so it's been quite a while. Um, I know what they look like still, um, but uh, it's been a while since I've touched one. I flew T-38s um, as an IFF instructor, Intro to Fighter Fundamentals, um, from 2008. Uh, 2007, 2009 at Randolph, um, did school staff work and the like. I uh, came back and I was a T-38 squadron commander at Vance. So uh, I've got a fighter background. I've got quite a bit of experience uh, in the UPT and uh, IFF, Intro to Fighter Fundamentals, again, uh, environment uh, as well. So um, I've got uh, a lot of time teaching. So you end up with a a big background, like you said, in the UPT environment and in AETC. So mm -hmm. how did this job come about for you as being the first director of Pilot Training Next? Well, uh, it was, I think, more fluke. You know, everything is most of the time up to luck and timing, and all you can do is be the best version of yourself so that when those opportunities arrive, um, uh, you're a viable candidate. And I think more than anything else, really, I just graduated to Air War College and uh, ended up on General Quast's inbound list when he was the uh, Air University uh, commander and um, he was he I think he knew at the time that he was going to take over uh, AETC and he wanted to look at how to innovate pilot training so uh, when I basically moved in I, right after Air War College uh, within a month and a half or so he asked me to start looking at ways to innovate pilot training and there's some already initial work that had been done by a few folks that he uh, uh, had tagged from uh, SAS and it started from there. Uh, market research began in earnest in late June, early July of 2017. And we were moving into Austin in January 2018 within six months to stand up a class and start uh, training and using the new technology. It really is hard to believe, but now we're already starting version two of mm -hmm. Pilot Training Next. But just to go back in time, obviously a lot of work to make Pilot Training Next version one happen. When you first started Pilot Training Next and got your marching orders from General Quast, what were those marching orders and then what were the results of that first iteration of Pilot Training Next? So I think the words that General Quast asked me standing in his uh, office at AU in late June, early July, I'm not sure of the date, was, Slew, I want you to run my uh, pilot training modernization strategy. Yes, sir. And when I walked out the door, that was the, uh, the big picture guidance. Um, and we, we talked several times about what he wanted to do with the uh, kind of new learning methodologies, the new technologies from VR to AI, um, and uh, different ways to analyze and look at data. So we had some big picture ideas about where we wanted to go. Uh, but to be honest with you, the, my biggest hurdle early on, and I think what stressed me out the most, was figuring out how to spend government dollars. Right? These are taxpayer dollars and that's all important stuff. We don't want to take that lightly. So uh, moving out in an aggressive fashion 
to get at the, the boss's intent uh, without breaking the law um, uh, was my biggest uh, uh, learning point. So once we figured out uh, the best way to get money on contract and, and execute, uh, then, then a lot started happening really quickly afterwards. Uh, I was able to uh, leverage a contract that gives us a lot of flexibility and, and time and materials and how we can get unique resources and skills and whatnot um, uh, in and out of uh, our hands and for different use and we can break stuff and get rid of it and buy something new and start this process of iteration. So that began in earnest in January when uh, the contract began and we were basically standing up in the facility uh, under contract and students showing up, instructors showing up and tech showing up within a month. So a very, very early uh, perception of risk for me was that I had students, instructors and tech all showing up at the same time, where if you did this, you know, planned it out, you'd have the tech show up, you'd integrate it, you'd make sure it works. Then you'd have your instructors show up, you'd teach them how to use it and get them bought into the idea of, uh, of what we're trying to do. And then you'd bring the students in. Um, well, when the students walked in the door, the instructors had only been here for a couple of days and there were still uh, boxes showing up. So it was very, very aggressive, which was our primary success metric early on is just keep going. Uh, press hard and uh, the students will let you know if it fails. If they can't get it done with where you're at, then um, they'll let you know. So keep, uh, keep at it. So they took us a lot further than I would have ever expected given the fact that we didn't have but one simulator put together. Uh, we call them uh, immersive training devices uh, when they walk through the door. That's all, all that we had. So they actually were literally building the tools by which they would innovate pilot training with their own hands and the screwdrivers and whatnot, putting the chairs together and uh, plugging the USB cords in the computers and whatnot. So they were doing that on their own. And I think that's really what makes it incredible, the amount of learning that was able to happen in such a short time, considering that wasn't all they were learning. No, they, so it's a very uh, frustrating and um, uh, just challenging environment where we have a pretty quick uh, procurement turnaround within 30 days from ordering something, we have it. Um, and that, that is pretty unique. Um, but when you're as a student and instructor trying to learn in this environment, um, 30 days is a long time. So the problems that you identified three weeks ago uh, is still there, it still persists. And uh, the tools, were in no way optimized for what we were asking. The T6 model that we we're flying was you know, sub-optimized. It would stall, correction, it wouldn't stall. It would just go right into a spin. Once you got to uh, the stall indication, it would just spin, fall out of the sky. Um, the version of uh, VR that we're using, the resolution just wasn't that good when we started out. So they had to overcome those challenges. The tech was unstable. Our AI, we never really got to use during version one. So we've uh, put a lot of effort into making sure that it's gonna be much more useful during version two. Uh, so it was very, very frustrating throughout. And to be honest with you, that's what innovation actually looks like, is on the edge where things don't work and it's always broken and uh, finding what the solutions are. And our philosophy is the best people to determine what right looks like are the instructors and students, the people that use the tools uh, directly. It's not me as the staff officer what, uh, that would determine the right use cases or the, to optimize it. If you want to use it in the best way possible, the users, the end users, are the ones that will help you sort out what right looks like. 
And it's interesting because really that focus in PTN is on how airmen learn, not necessarily what they learn. That was one of your charges mm -hmm. and exploring technology and how that technology can produce better and faster learning. So what did that look like in PTN V1 and, and what are the lessons that you carry forward now moving into iteration two? So we have several different major, uh, you know, let's say learning points we draw, drew out of uh, version one. Um, but to highlight your first point is, you know, how airmen learn uh, at a larger level, not just how they learn in the pilot training context. That's something we've taken pretty seriously. Um, we've put together uh, a model that would be the way pilot training next understands uh, uh, individual airmen learning. Um, we call it the three loops model where you close an experiential loop. So anytime someone engages with the content, it tailors towards them in that moment. Uh, for us, it's, it's a matter of changing the environment, optimizing it to keep the student on an optimum learning curve while they're in the simulator. Um, and that work is ongoing. We've closed the loop, but it's not optimized yet. The second loop is to create an adaptive training system so that, that their next events are based on their previous performance, not a what would we consider a syllabus. It's not pre-planned, it's based off of previous performance. And then you, the third loop is to take all that data at the end of the, of the course and throughout as well and feed that back into your accession system. Um, that's all built on the foundation of, uh, of excellent teachers. So you need to make sure that your teachers have a solid understanding of individual progression and how to optimize themselves to help students progress uh, at their own pace. And then uh, Joan Quas' fifth priority uh, also fits in there as training context. So if there's opportunity to uh, build a training environment where you recognize the, 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 I'll say the nature of war in that environment is competitive, that you're uh, not going to be just given things, you have to take them. Um, and you can't take much for granted from your communication channels to uh, your access to other resources. Uh, it's going to be a competitive environment and you have to learn in the context that, that those things are not always going to be available to you. So um, that's how we uh, think about um, training in this environment. So the, the first big learning point was we drew out the, uh, uh, the three loops model. The other one is that VR is very capable. So a couple of studies that we uh, did uh, during version one, we had uh, a team from a company called Aptima that works with AFRL. They do a uh, simulator fidelity uh, survey and study. And despite all the complaining, I'll say valid, legitimate complaining that the students did during version one, and that's what we hired them to do is come complain about this tech, break it, and point out all our failures um, in building this environment. Um, all they're complaining, the feedback that they gave in the survey was still overwhelmingly positive. So despite the fact that it was not optimized for what we wanted, um, what they needed, they still found great use out of it. Uh, we also had uh, IDA, the Institute for Defense Analyses, look at our data and uh, they asked the question, does sim performance transfer to the aircraft? And uh, basically from iteration one, Again, the simulator not optimized for the student. We saw uh, that simulator performance predicted flight performance at least 70% of the time. So um, I think that's pretty positive. So the simulator has both subjective value, meaning the students, the students liked it. They, they saw that it was a useful tool for them. And it has objective value, meaning that it also does 
prove beneficial. It did prove beneficial as far as predicting student performance in the air. Now, and just from a learning perspective, from a layman's term who may not be familiar, as familiar with pilot training, is that something that can translate when you're in that traditional UPT model with the sims? Are they able, is that kind of 70% number, is that uh, uh, comparable or what does that look like? To, as far as, uh, it's a different logic. So I don't know how it would apply in the legacy unless you uh, accept the same model that we're doing here, which is training the simulate, yeah. training the immersive training devices and then validate in the aircraft. So that, that logic of progression, um, I think, is, uh, makes that question they asked, does the sim transfer uh, uh, particularly appropriate to us? It wouldn't necessarily transfer. That said, um, the methodology, the, the uh, math that they did in the background, there's a lot of different use cases for that process in the legacy system right now as well that, that I think it, we can really leverage in the near term to help flight commanders and squadron commanders and OGs and wing commanders make decisions about airmen, with airmen, um, about their future. Now, in PTN version one, there was an issue a little bit with, um, you had some unique time constraints that yes. kind of uh, hampered your processes a, a mm -hmm. little bit and obviously you want quality as a constant and time right. as a variable that's one of general costs long-held industrial age paradigms mm -hmm. that he would want to break can you kind of talk through that and what you're doing now as opposed to in version two as opposed to version one right so um, using the Google model of innovation uh, where you set something out from the current uh, culture and let it develop its own culture and learn within itself what these things, uh, uh, the tools and the, uh, the technology can do. Um, since we opted for that model, that requires us to be TY. Um, doesn't mandate it, but it allows us the most flexible. We don't have to disrupt airmen's lives as much by PCSing everybody out. Um, uh, so we opted for the TDY model, which um, puts a unique constraint on us of 179 days. Um, that said, during iteration one, we got 13 of the students across the line in, in 179 days, but I think we sacrificed a lot to actually get there. We really pushed hard late in the game, um, and uh, uh, everybody worked very, very hard to, to cross that line. Um, so it, it almost uh, added uh, extra rigor that is, would not be in the, in the I'll say, uh, any type of model that transfers that constraint would be gone. So what are we doing in version two? I think that we're gonna to try to make early decisions about those who would require perhaps more than uh, six months and uh, PCS them down to Randolph uh, to participate in the standup of PTN as it continues down there. So um, those that we think can accelerate and get done within six months, then we'll keep them here and press them, press to get them done. Um, and those that uh, that look like they'll take longer, then we'll move them down. With the goal of actually uh, seeing how long, you know, if someone needs to take 12 months, then we'll leave them for 12 months. If they need um, uh, only eight, then we'll get them done in eight. So we don't have that uh, kind of false imposed 179 day constraint. It's just, it becomes an, an administrative factor rather than a training factor like it was in version one. And so really that kind of talks to time, which is one of the paradigms right. that General Quas wants to break, but it also talks to that the students in a learner-centric environment control the learning. Absolutely. So one of the challenges that we have is we want to structure this environment 
to measure competence, not time. Right now, uh, within emails that are flowing through uh, the pipes within AETC and the pilot training basis, we've actually laid down student numbers all the way out to probably 2023, um, graduating or beginning class and graduating class. Those had been laid down uh, with the five-year POM cycle. Um, to pull away from that individualized learning, it may, creates a little bit of chaos, right? People start uh, when they're ready and they graduate when they're done. Uh, so you need to create several different mechanisms to pull order out of that chaos and uh, be, be able to predict student performance based off of early progression and start doing those correlations that uh, can help you understand when people are going to be completed and, and the directions that they're going to go. And I think the data, uh, uh, the data potential as well as the tools that do data analysis help us uh, move that direction. Um, also, uh, you need to structure the data to understand competencies. So that's not necessarily where we go right now. The, the legacy system, you get about 80 hours per platform, you know, 80 hours in T6 and then 80 hours in either the T38 or the T1, uh, roughly. And where you have that time, that's equals competency in some in some fashion uh, that it equals experience also you have um, on the uh, other side a specific number of tasks that people need to get up to a specific standard and perform at that level so those two things give us confident uh, confidence when really what we want to measure is not just task performance uh, compounded added up to this total number of time equals success what we want uh, to understand is actually the fundamental competencies that individuals have. How are you at spatial awareness and how good are you at spatial reasoning, um, task management? And all those things, we do measure that quite a bit, but we only uh, indicate really failure and we don't actually look necessarily at how well and how high a person can go and train to some of those things. So we're hoping to actually start focusing in on some more fundamental competencies and letting people finish this program based off of what that data suggests. And so kind of transitioning, but not really talking about data. I know biometric data mm -hmm. was kind of a, a hope for version one. It didn't necessarily yeah. pan out the way you thought mm -hmm. it would, but moving forward, um, again, yet another way that you're trying to be in line with General Qua's strategic vision for the command using big data-driven decision-making mm -hmm. to kind of shape the, or reimagine uh, what our training pipelines look like. So, you know, I would be, uh, disservice to the role that General Quast has given us if I didn't talk about our failures, right? Because that's our number one job is to get out here and fail. So where, where have we failed? Um, first is in our data in version one. We learned more about how not to do data uh, in version one than we actually learned from the data of version one. There's still a lot of analysis <laughs> to be done. Uh, so, uh, but I think that there's a, there was a lot of learning. If you think of a, a, a true experiment where you've you generally structure an environment around your sensors to make sure you have very clean data. Well, what we're trying to do is build a training environment and structure sensors within that training environment to collect data. So it's a different mentality. So we're working our way, iterating through a variety of sensors to help us understand the data. Biometrics, I'll say that there's still tons of opportunity for failure in that space. Uh, first of all, collecting the data is not easy. Um, and then uh, I think there's uh, not, it. there's a lot of opportunity for correlating performance and 
there's a lot, not a lot of agreement on how best that works. So there's uh, several different ways we can go. Again, lots of, still lots of opportunity for failure in that. Um, so biometrics is a, is a big challenge. Making it accessible real time is the biggest challenge that we have. So we, we're collecting the heart rate data and we're collecting cognitive load and, and that kind of thing. But being able to use it real time to be able to iterate that training experience like I talked about earlier or provide it to the instructor so we can see actually how hard the student's working. We've always leaned on some tried and true things. Are they missing radio calls? How hard are they breathing? All those things, right? Um, and those are all suggestive of a, um, pretty accurately suggestive of how hard a student's working. But we can know a little bit more about actually objectively how hard a student's mind is working. Um, don't know where that data is going to take us yet, but we're trying to collect it right now. The other thing on the data side um, is that uh, we lost a lot of data in version one. We could have been collecting uh, that we just didn't or uh, thought we were, but due to a glitch in the system, uh, we weren't uh, collecting. So we've, we've made a lot of corrections in that. We've actually built dashboards to help us see when the data is coming in and all that. So we have a lot more confidence in version two that not only that we're getting the data, that, that it's uh, going to be a, a lot cleaner in collection than it was in version one. So from a technology perspective, I know you've been obviously, you know, learning as you go with the VR, um, and that's been a huge part of what you guys are doing. But can you talk a little bit about just some of the uh, improvements you've made from a VR perspective now as you roll into version two? So, um, so VR is, is a, uh, I'll say, a, a tech space that's advancing very, very rapidly, and it's independently of... Uh, you know, any d demand signal from the uh, uh, DOD or, you know, I'll say training spaces, um, that's being driven by the, the consumer market. Um, and that's moving fast. So we just want to keep up with that as best as possible. But how do we structure a training environment around uh, a tool that is capable as VR is really um, uh, the great challenge. And I think where a lot of good insights are coming. We've built, um, uh, I'll say some very customized 360 video this for training, and we'll see how the students value that. We've built uh, emergency procedures trainers where you are in VR and you can uh, interact with an environment to do to solve emergency procedures. It's going to be uh, kind of the stand-up of the future, as it were, where you get to uh, interact uh, and everybody gets to watch your interactions and see actually what you would do. And uh, you have the checklist there, and you actually you know, manipulate the aircraft uh, in the process. So there's some of those tools, some interactive and engaging content development. We're also looking at uh, providing scenarios. I think one of the great advancements that we're going to be able to leverage in version two that was not quite ready for version one is uh, our artificial intelligence tutor. That when the students go home to their dorm rooms, they're not just creating bad habits, but there is something there uh, watching them and providing them feedback on their performance. Um, it's also something that hopefully by the end of version two, we can figure out how best to use it as an instructor offset tool so that uh, the AI can provide uh, at least a baseline set of grades that the instructor can go back in and, and modify as he or she sees fit and um, can say, hey, just monitor altitude and airspeed for me. I'm going to keep track of the rest and, and offload some of that instructor performance or the instructor requirements to the uh, AI. Another thing that it does besides uh, instructor offload as well as you know tracking student performance and they're off time when, this, when an actual instructor isn't there, um, is that it tags the data. And this is one of the most important things, is that if I'm going to analyze student performance, I need to know what that performance is. I, you know, are they doing a loop? Or were they doing a nose-high recovery? That, that's a significant thing. You grade those differently. And the AI actually uh, can help us tag the data so that we know student intent 
within it, and then we can go back and measure things uh, a bit more uh, objectively. And that's very helpful, is that it produces a tagged set of data, which uh, makes it that much more usable for analysis. I think sometimes, too, getting lost in the mix can be the academic side of learning mm -hmm. how to fly uh, mm -hmm. an airplane and so talk a little bit about the restructuring because I know that that's been a significant mm -hmm. effort by your staff as well. And it's, it, to be honest with you, it's, it's one of the proudest things that I've seen going on that makes me very happy to see across the institution right now is there's a lot of energy going into academics across the UPT wings. Um, and we are trying to uh, collect all that as best we can as all the other organizations out there are building content. Um, CSI instructors are making uh, videos and um, they're uh, putting different content online. We're trying to collect it all into our learning management system so that we have as much uh, content as possible. Uh, the idea is to structure two spaces, the sanctioned space on one side, where if you want to progress through academics, you have to do these things. But on the left side, there's this social space where, you know, the gouge, as it were, gets collected and uh, gets valued Amazon style. Thumbs up, thumbs down, three stars, five stars. And as students uh, like things and it goes up in value, it is something that uh, emerges socially from uh, uh, from that space, and we can look at porting it over into the sustainment side. So it, there's not just stuff that we're doing, there's a lot of energy across uh, the UPT enterprise right now to create uh, content, and we're doing our best to, to capture all of it, but it's difficult to keep up with them because there's a lot of energy out there. And just like everything else, I feel like it is kind of a recurring theme, but use of this academic structure really has taken away some of those artificial time constraints that have been, been placed on learning. Yep, so uh, we did during, uh, uh, after completion of version two, or version one, before the start of version two, uh, we took eight, eight simulators, correction, four simulators to the Air Force Academy and selected eight students from the academy to do a distance learning program um, with those things. And they spent a lot of time repairing them. They were not stable at all. So they actually spent, just like the version one students, a lot of time just keeping those things fixed because it wasn't a fixed base kind of thing. We didn't have all the, the local support that, uh, that we had here. Uh, so it was a lot of good learning there. So they spent more time fixing the sims than they did leveraging them, but they got about eight weeks. Uh, and the, it was all AI graded. So all their maneuvers were uh, instructed, demoed, and uh, graded by our artificial intelligence. So we have grade books for these eight uh, lieutenants that uh, was built entirely by an artificial intelligence uh, instructor. And it was showing progress. So they were able to get from an objective measurement uh, of performance uh, up to goods and excellence in their, uh, in their grading for individual maneuvers uh, with pretty, pretty consistent uh, um, uh, over time. Also, so we had, we did a, we put them through our kind of talent selection process. We had their performance, their grade books. We gave a check ride, a long distance check ride. So our uh, check pilots were here in Austin. The students were flying their simulators at, at the Air Force Academy and we um, basically monitored their performance and provided feedback for them. And the instructor uh, feedback was that their decision-making, task management, and just the way they managed themselves in the environment was on par with someone 14 to 16 rides in the program. Uh, normally, so uh, as soon as we get these guys to a point where they're able to fly, we're going to give them a little check ride and see how much they did actually learn and how we can value that time that they spent uh, ahead of time. Ultimately, we picked four of the eight to, to come in, and uh, we'll see how much gains or how many gains we had uh, from the time that we spent there with them ahead of time. 
and this is really a good point to tra kind of transition into that selection piece mm -hmm. of how you got to your class size here at Pilot Training Next, which also does include uh, not only uh, sister service mm -hmm. uh, pilot candidates, but also an international candidate. So we have, uh, we have a lot of variety within our cohort, this, uh, this version. So we went with the 15 officer, five enlisted model that we did in version one with the enlisted being the primary way that we're testing our uh, selection metrics. If we want to innovate within the selection space, we're looking to reach outside of the legacy cohort and uh, or legacy talent pool, and that's what the enlisted represent for us. So mm -hmm. these are great Americans stepping up to, to capitalize on a phenomenal opportunity, and um, uh, they're teaching us a lot about how to look for uh, talent and the, and the metrics that we have there. Um, we also added six uh, RPA Next students that are going to do a sim-only program with us. So we actually have 26 students instead of just the 20 that we had last time. Um, within our officers, uh, the 15 officers that we have um, that are in the kind of the, uh, the PTN pilot track, um, we have uh, the four from the academy, that special kind of selection there. We have five from the, the current system. We have one individual that's upgrading from an 18X to an 11U, so he's in an RPA guide, the special selected to be brought in. We have two Navy as well as um, one RAF student, so we're combined and joint uh, in this process, and we have two guard guys as well. So um, very uh, diverse and, and uh, robust group of, uh, of folks, and I'm actually very happy with these guys. They all come in very energetic. It's, it's a, an important part of this, uh, honestly, is uh, we have to be, you know, it will skew the data in every way, uh, or in a lot of ways, but you can't just bring anybody into this program. You, you need talented people that are gonna help you iterate. Right now, the thing that is in question is not them, it's the training process, and I need people that are gonna be aggressive, that uh, are gonna be able to understand how we learn in this environment and tell me when it's wrong and not just be imposed. So we need, we need the right kind of people, and these guys are very energetic. So to kind of wrap this up, I know you have spent a lot of time over the last year going out and educating uh, the Air Force at large about pilot training next. And you've had a lot of high level visitors, including the Secretary of the Air Force role here through Austin mm -hmm. uh, to see your program. And, and But there still might exist some untruths out there, yeah. or word of mouth. So now's your chance to <laughs> kind of dispel that, yeah. that uh, you know, myth, if yeah. you will. Um, so maybe what are some of the myths um, that you'd um, like to dispel? I think probably the most egregious one I've heard is that we brought in all students that have like thousands of hours of flying already so that the program's guaranteed to succeed. Um, uh, I'll say that our success is in our failure. Um, we're not trying to pad anything. Uh, the intent is really to, to test the, the technology. So as I alluded, I need, I need special kind of airmen that know how to do that kind of thing to help us test this technology. If they can't learn with it, no one can. If they can learn with it, then we can start scaling back into uh, more representative samples. But we, uh, starting out, we just got to see uh, where that goes. So we, we, while we did uh, strive to take volunteers and we want competent people that, are, uh, that can help us out, um, we didn't try to pad the stats with 1,000-hour uh, students. Um, I think a lot of speculation has gone into how our students are doing right now as far as in the FTUs and all that. And um, our feedback is that uh, uh, I'll say that we have uh, students performing across the bell curve, right? 
Some are better than others, as you, as you would expect. Um, and the feedback uh, is uh, something's good, uh, something's, you know, need work, obviously. So the alpha version, we were never expecting to be 100%, you know, this is the, this is the goal. Um, so there's, uh, there's some good learning there, and there's just a lot of speculation about how they're performing. Um, and a lot of, I'll say, without going into specifics, they're just misconceptions about how the students uh, are doing uh, overall. I think uh, ultimately uh, what I would like people to know about this program uh, to help shape their thoughts is that um, we are doing our best to be as objective as we can about the technology and the tools and the processes that we're, we're bringing in. I'm structuring uh, uh, a way to make sure that the data that comes out of this thing um, is looked at in a variety of different ways before we uh, validate uh, anything. So I think the most important thing we can do is be objective. So what that truly means is that when we fail, and we fail often, we need to be open and honest about it. Um, uh, this is the type of thing that, that doesn't occur often, and um, our success is determined by how fast we fail, how often we fail, and how small we fail. So we need to structure ourselves to make it a painful environment. It's gonna be tough that we're gonna be pushing the tech further than, than uh, uh, it can go. Uh, we're going to be asking an instructor pilot to um, monitor six students when the tech does not allow six students uh, to be monitored effectively. And I, okay, so what do you need if you're going to monitor six students? What do I need to give you? And where is the tech going to help us do that? So it's hard for these guys to endure in the, with the questions that we're asking. Um, and we're pushing small failures like that. Uh, hopefully, by the end of this thing, with all those small failures, um, we will have built something and learned enough to be able to build something that the institution can lean on. Well, and ultimately, you know, our goal is to make our Air Force more lethal and ready, and innovation yeah. is such a, a huge part of it, and so much innovation going on here. But we want to say thanks for your time, and, and we appreciate Pleasure. it. Thank you. Wow, just a ton of goodness happening up in Austin at Pilot Training Next. Exciting times in the flying training world indeed, and of course, across the entire First Command. We wanna say thank you to Lieutenant Colonel Vickers for taking some time out to talk to us, despite a very hectic schedule up there at PTN. As a reminder, you can follow Air Education and Training Command via social media on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, as well as the web at www.aetc.af.mil. Thanks for checking out the podcast as we dive into the world of recruiting, training, and education. For our entire AETC public affairs staff, I'm Dan Hawkins. So long, and we'll talk to you next time on Developing Mach 21 Airmen.